Section 19 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Braganza, Chapter 1, Part 1. The birth of Catherine of Braganza occurred at a momentous crisis for her country and her family. Her father, John, Duke of Braganza, afterwards surnamed the Fortunate, was the grandson and representative of Dona Maria, Duchess of Braganza, the rightful heiress of the royal house of Portugal, who on the death of the cardinal king, Don Henry, the successor of the unfortunate Don Sebastian, entered the lists as a claimant of the crown, with two powerful competitors, the Prince of Parma and Philip II of Spain. Might overcame right on that occasion, for it is well known that Philip succeeded in annexing Portugal to his own dominions, and for a period of nearly sixty years, that country remained in the degraded position of an oppressed and misgoverned province of Spain. Repeated wrongs and insults roused at length the spirit of the descendants of the Lusitanian heroes, who had maintained the independence of their country against the victorious legions of Rome, and, for centuries of successful warfare, repelled the aggressions of the Moors. The imbecile despotism and political blunders of their Spanish rulers, Philip III and IV, while they excited their anger and contempt, inspired them with hope that a bold struggle for liberty might be successfully attempted. Patriotic associations were secretly organized in Lisbon, and all the principal towns of Portugal for throwing off the Spanish yoke and asserting their national independence once more. The hour of political regeneration drew nigh. All eyes naturally turned on the last of the old royal line, the Duke of Braganza, the patriotic party with hope and confidence, and the Spanish authorities with feeling of jealous suspicion. Braganza considered, meantime, that measures were not sufficiently matured for a successful rising, and to avoid alike the observations of his foes and the perilous intrigues of his friends, he retired with his beloved wife, Dona Luisa, the daughter of the Duke of Medina Sidonia, and their two infant sons, to his palace of Via Visosa. It was in this delicious spot, which has been justly named the terrestrial paradise of Portugal, that the Duchess gave birth to her third child, a daughter, on St. Catherine's Day, November 25th, 1638, between the hours of eight and nine in the evening. On Saturday, the 12th of the following December, the infant princess was baptized with great pomp in the ducal chapel of the parish by Antonio de Brito y Sousa, the dean of the chapel, and in honor of the virgin saint and martyr, on whose festival she was born, she was named Catherine. Her godfather was the Marquis de Ferra, Don Francisco de Mayo, a wealthy grandee of high rank, and one of the most beloved of her father's friends and partisans. The anniversary of Catherine of Braganza's birth has always been regarded as an auspicious day for Portugal, in consequence of an incident which connected the celebration of the feat when she completed her second year with the emancipation of that country from the yoke of Spain. It was on that day, November 25, 1640, that Don Gaspar Contigno came to Via Visosa to urge the Duke of Braganza to accede to the prayer of the associated patriots that he should declare himself their leader and accept the crown of which he was the rightful heir. This proposition filled the Duke with perplexity, for he was not only happy in the enjoyment of all the ties of domestic love as a husband and father, but in peaceful possession of his states, 
comprising not less than a third of the realm, and was unwilling to hazard the loss of these by embarking on an enterprise so full of peril. The bold spirit of his wife decided his doubtful resolve by an appeal to his parental love and pride. This day, said she, our friends are assembled round us to celebrate the anniversary of the birth of our little Catherine, and who knows but this new guest may not have been sent to certify you that it is the will of heaven, through an especial grace, to invest you with that crown of which you have long been unjustly deprived by Spain. For my part, I regard it as a happy presage that he comes on such a day. She then caused the infant Catherine to be brought in, and having made her kiss the duke, she added, how can you find it in your heart to refuse to confer on this child the rank of a king's daughter? This burst of feminine eloquence had a more powerful effect on the wavering mind of the duke than all the persuasions and reasonings of the patriotic nobles and statesmen by whom he was surrounded, and he declared his determination to peril his great wealth, his life, and all the blessings by which he was surrounded, for the glorious object of delivering his country from a foreign yoke. A few days afterwards, he bade adieu to the beautiful shades of Via Visosa, and removed, with his wife and little ones, to Lisbon, where he was immediately proclaimed king, by the title of Juan the Fourth, and commenced active measures for the liberation of his realm. The struggle was long and fierce, for although Don Juan won almost every battle in which he encountered his enemies, the physical force and resources of Spain were so infinitely superior to those of Portugal, that at times it required all the energetic eloquence of his queen, Dona Luisa, to encourage him even to hope for a successful issue. The event proved the truth of the glorious aphorism, that freedom's battle once begun, bequeathed from the bleeding sire to son, though baffled oft, is always won. The title of Don Juan was not allowed by the Pope or by any of the Catholic courts of Europe, except that of France. But Portugal had always found an ally and protector in England, and Charles I, though unable to assist Don Juan in any other way, rendered him the important service of recognizing him as the sovereign of Portugal. Immediately after the decisive overthrow that was given to the Spanish forces by Don Juan in the year 1644, he empowered his ambassador, Sabran, to make overtures to Charles for a marriage between their children, the Prince of Wales, afterwards Charles II, and the little Infanta, Catherine of Braganza. The finances of the royal party in England were then at so low an ebb that the dower, with which the great wealth of Don Juan enabled him to endow his daughter, would doubtless have been very acceptable, yet Charles did not respond to the proposal in an encouraging manner. He had probably felt the disadvantage of the differences on religious matters between himself and his own consort too keenly, to wish to see his son united to a Roman Catholic princess, Nothing, in fact, could have been more unpopular than such an alliance, independently of the unsuitable ages of the parties, Catherine having only just completed her seventh year, while the Prince of Wales was turned of fourteen. Seventeen years afterwards, when they actually became man and wife, Catherine was, by many persons, considered too old for the consort of a prince, so many years her senior. 
the father of Catherine maintained the contest against the gigantic power of Spain with better fortune than that which attended the struggle of Charles I with his rebellious subjects, and he finally succeeded in establishing himself on the throne of Portugal. Catherine received her education in a convent, where she was very strictly bred under the watchful superintendence of the queen mother, by whom she was tenderly beloved, and she was so much the object of her royal father's affection, that just before his death he executed a grant, dated November 1st, 1656, in which, after an acknowledgment of her virtues, he gave her the island of Madeira, the city of Lanego, and the town of Mora, with all their territories, rents, tributes, and other privileges to be enjoyed by her. He also gave her other places and sources of income, but provided that, in case of her marriage out of the kingdom, she should relinquish them on receiving a proper equivalent from the crown. Soon after he had made this princely statement on Dona Catherine, her illustrious father died in the prime of life, worn out with the toils and anxieties of the arduous struggle in which he had engaged. The Spaniards testified an indecent joy at the news of his death, but he had left the regency of the kingdom in the hands of his queen, the master spirit by whom he had been incited to the glorious enterprise of a liberator, and to her the honor was reserved of completing the work of national regeneration, which he had been compelled to leave unfinished. Don Alfonso, the eldest brother of Catherine, was of age to reign at the death of the king their father, but such was the confidence that all parties reposed in the talents and virtues of the widowed queen, that she was permitted to resume the reins of government, which she retained for upwards of ten years. She triumphantly established the independence of Portugal, not merely by the repeated victories which her armies won over the invading forces of Spain, but by the diplomatic skill with which she steered her difficult course with foreign powers. Her domestic government and commercial policy were even more admirable, and she was universally considered as the wisest sovereign in Europe. The daughter of such a princess was not likely to remain without candidates for her hand. Many proposals were made, but Dona Luisa had determined to render Catherine's marriage a source of additional strength to her newly established throne of Portugal, and she appears to have kept her single with the secret intention of securing an alliance with England, by wedding her with Charles II, whose restoration her penetration enabled her to foresee. If Burnett may be credited, the preliminary overtures for this marriage were made to General Monk by a Jew, who, notwithstanding the penalties attached to his proscribed and persecuted religion in Portugal, had obtained very considerable influence in the cabinet of Dona Luisa. This statement is probably correct, for Jews had frequently been employed both as spies and political agents. The strong links of fellowship which bind this widely scattered people together as one large family extend from one end of the world to the other, and afford peculiar means of information to a diplomatist of that race. The sagacious queen of Portugal had no doubt received, through this source, certain intelligence of the impending changes in England, when she directed him to propose the alliance to the man, who was silently, but surely concerting measures for securing a lasting peace for England, by the recall of her exiled king. The idea of a Catholic consort for Charles was not likely to meet with much encouragement from Monk. Charles himself was then occupied in wooing a princess, 
who would have been a more suitable bride for him than a daughter of either Spain or Portugal. After wounded pride had enabled him to conquer his passion for the fair Hortense Mancini, he withdrew to Hochstaten, a village in Flanders, about four miles from Breda, where he often went to visit his sister, the Princess of Orange. He had there frequent opportunities of seeing and conversing with the Princess Henrietta, daughter of Frederick Henry, Prince of Orange, and became honorably attached to her. The regard was mutual, and he sent the Marquess of Ormond to propose the marriage to the elder Princess Dowager of Orange, but she declined the offer for her daughter, declaring that she saw no chance for the amendment of his fortunes. When the deputation from Parliament, inviting Charles to return to England and take possession of the crown, arrived at Breda, bringing a present of 50,000 pounds in gold to relieve the personal necessities of the destitute sovereign, the old lady regretted her narrow-minded policy and would willingly have made any concession to repair the blunder she had committed in declining his alliance. Charles, however, treated all overtures from her for that purpose with the contempt they merited. He could not forgive the personal affront that had been offered to him in the season of his adversity. When the first burst of national joy, which greeted Charles II, on his restoration to the throne of Great Britain, had a little subsided, his friends became urgent with him to choose a consort. The selection of Catherine of Braganza for the Queen of Charles II has generally been attributed to the family policy of the Lord Chancellor Clarendon, who, it is said, did not wish the sovereign to marry a princess likely to bring heirs to the crown, to deprive the children of the Duke of York by his daughter of the regal succession. But as Catherine was only in her twenty-third year when the negotiation for this alliance first commenced, it was quite as likely that she would have a family as the Duchess of York, and Charles was the last man in the world to be guided in his choice of a wife by the selfish views of his minister. The real spring of this marriage was Louis the Fourteenth, and according to Cart, the person by whom it was suggested to Charles, in the first instance, was no other than his own mother, Queen Henrietta, who was in the interest of the French cabinet, and at the same time desirous of seeing her son united to a princess of her own religion. The negotiation was opened towards the close of her visit to England, in 1660, or immediately after her departure, in the following manner. The Portuguese ambassador, Don Francisco de Mayo, Catherine of Braganza's godfather, paid Charles's Lord Chamberlain, the Earl of Manchester, a visit one day, and after bestowing many commendations on his royal master, observed, that it was time he should bestow himself in marriage, and that nothing could keep him single but the difficulty of finding a suitable consort for him. He then added, that there was in Portugal a princess in her beauty, person and age, very fit for him, and who could have a portion suitable to her birth and quality. She was indeed a Catholic, and would never depart from her religion, but she had none of that meddling activity, which sometimes made persons of that faith troublesome, when they came into a country where another mode of worship was practiced. That she had been bred under a wise mother, who had carefully infused another spirit into her, and kept her from affecting to interfere in state affairs, with which she was totally unacquainted, so that she could be contented to enjoy her own religion, without concerning herself with what others professed. The ambassador concluded by saying, that he had authority to make the proposition to the king, 
accompanied with such advantages as he thought no other power in Europe could offer. The Lord Chamberlain duly repeated this conversation to the king, who merely replied that he would think of it. But the next morning, the ambassador came to his majesty, and going straight to the point, repeated to him all he had said to his Lord Chamberlain, and concluded by stating that he was authorized to offer 500,000 pounds sterling in ready money as a portion for the Infanta, and likewise to assign over an annex to the crown of England forever, the possession of Tangier upon the African shore in the Mediterranean Sea, a place of that strength and importance as would be of infinite benefit and security to the trade of England, likewise to grant to the English nation a free trade in Brazil and in the East Indies, which they had hitherto denied to all nations but themselves, and also promised to put into his majesty's hands the island of Bombay, with its spacious bay, towns, and castles, which possessions, he said, might be valued far above the portion in money. Charles, who was not only burdened with the debts incurred by the protectorate, but already pretty deeply involved on his own account, listened to the proffer of half a million of money with ill-suppressed delight, and hastened to communicate the overture to his premier. Charles confessed to Clarendon that the proposals pleased him, and that he considered they might prove of notable advantage to the kingdom. And he asked him what he himself thought of it. Clarendon replied dryly, that he had not heard enough of it to form an opinion, never having heard a word of it till that moment, and therefore he should not be able to do more when the ambassador came to him than to hear what he said and report to his majesty. For the present, he only asked if his majesty had given up all thoughts of a Protestant wife. Charles replied, that he could not find one except among his own subjects, and among them he had seen no one that pleased him sufficiently for that purpose. Then, observing Clarendon to look fixedly at him, he added, that he would never more think of the Princess of Orange's daughter, her mother having used him so ill when he proposed it, and if he should now propose it, he knew his mother would never consent to it, and it would break his sister's heart. To this his minister replied, that he desired nothing more than to see his majesty well married, and he was very confident all his good subjects were in the same mind, and that he was ready to confer with the Portuguese ambassador on the subject. Charles then appointed a secret council to be held at the Lord Chancellor's house, consisting of only of the Marquess of Ormond, the Lord Treasurer, the Lord Chamberlain, Secretary Nicholas, and the Chancellor, at which he presided, and opened the business to them in person, he said that he had inquired of his two great naval commanders, the Earl of Sandwich and Sir John Lawson, what place Tangier was, pointing to it at the same time on the map, and they both said they knew it well from the sea. But Sir John Lawson had been in it and had represented it as a place of great importance, which, if it fell into the hands of the Dutch, and they were to make a mole there, would enable them to give the law to all the trade of the Mediterranean. With which discourse, his majesty seemed much impressed. The expediency of his choosing a Protestant queen, having been suggested by some of the lords, Charles again said, where he should find one. Several German princesses were then mentioned to him. Odds fish, exclaimed the king impatiently, they are all dull and foggy. I cannot like any one of them for a wife. 
another of the lords named a lady, whom report said had been to his majesty's taste, the princess Henrietta of Orange, but Charles cut him short by saying, he had unanswerable objections to that marriage. It was then unanimously agreed that, there was no Catholic princess in Europe who could offer such advantages as the Infanta of Portugal, whose portion in money was almost double what any king of England had ever received with a consort, and her territorial appanages were places of great importance for the increase of trade, especially in the Indies and the Mediterranean, where such damage had been sustained by the commercial relations of England during the late troubles. The king approved these observations and ordered their lordships to open the matrimonial treaty with all possible secrecy. Don Francisco de Mayo offered to go back to Portugal in order to facilitate the business there, not doubting, he said, to return with full powers for the completion of the treaty. Charles wrote to Catherine's mother, the queen regent, and her brother, the king, letters expressing his wish for the marriage, and also to herself, as to a lady he looked upon as his betrothed wife. He assigned two ships for the convoy of the ambassador, who, with his wife and family, immediately set sail for Lisbon. The news of the auspicious manner in which the preliminaries for this alliance had been opened filled the court of Lisbon with great joy, and the diplomatic skill of Don Francisco was immediately rewarded with the title of Count da Ponte, and he was dispatched to England with full powers to conclude the marriage. He arrived in London, January 1661, but found an unexpected change in the manner of his reception, or rather non-reception, for he could not obtain an audience from the king, or leave to present the replies of the royal family to Charles's letters. The king had, in the meantime, received a very unpleasant impression of Catherine from the reports of the emissaries of Spain, who were, of course, anxious to break the match. Digby, Earl of Bristol, Clarendon's great enemy, had just returned from a visit to the court of Spain, and in his first interview with the king, penetrated the secret of the matrimonial treaty with Portugal. This earl, says Clarendon, valued himself on the faculty of perplexing and obstructing everything in which he had no hand. In accordance with this amiable propensity, he went to the Spanish ambassador and informed him of what was going on. That envoy, who had established himself on terms of great familiarity with King Charles, took the liberty of remonstrating with him on the subject of his friendly negotiations with Portugal, and finding his arguments made no impression on the king, he began to deprecate the person of the Infanta, saying that she was deformed, had bad health, and it was well known in Spain and Portugal that she would never have children. With many other remarks, to which Charles's curiosity tempted him to forget his dignity so far as to listen. These injurious reports were confirmed by the Earl of Bristol, who then, by way of antithesis, drew an attractive description of the beauty of some of the Italian princesses, of whom he said the king might take his choice, and that, if he would give up the Portuguese match, the king of Spain would agree to give either of those ladies whom he had selected, as large a portion as if she were a daughter of Spain. These discourses greatly abated Charles's inclination for a marriage with Catherine of Braganza. 
he broke off his negotiations with that court, and inclined so far to the persuasions of the Spanish ambassador, to take a consort of his master's recommending, as to send the Earl of Bristol on a secret mission to the city of Parma, to obtain further information regarding the personal qualifications of the two princesses. One side of these ladies, of whom he had a view as they were going to church, was sufficient to convince the Earl that neither would suit the taste of his royal master, one was so fat and the other so ugly that he dared not incur the risk of recommending either to his prince, who was so great a connoisseur in female beauty as Charles. When Vatteville, the Spanish ambassador, learned the ill success of Bristol's voyage of discovery, he made a bold attempt to prevent the Portuguese alliance and actually offered to portion a Protestant bride for Charles. He pathetically enlarged on the inconveniences and unpopularity that would attend a Catholic marriage, and earnestly recommended him to marry a daughter of the King of Denmark, or of the Elector of Saxony. Charles, meantime, had made inquiries of several persons, who had lately returned from Portugal, as to what manner of woman the Infanta really was, and received a description of her, very different from the prejudiced representations of the Spanish envoy and his creatures. This decided him to show a little more courtesy to the Portuguese ambassador, who had fallen sick with vexation at the contempt that had been put upon him and his princess by the fickle monarch. The renewal of the friendly communications in that quarter elicited fresh remonstrances from Vatteville, and Charles, who was really weary of his interference and importunity, began to evince some impatience. Then the haughty envoy changed his caressing tone and said in plain words, that he was directed by the king, his master, to let his majesty know that, if he should proceed towards a marriage with the daughter of his rebel, the Duke of Braganza, he had orders to take his leave presently and declare war against him. Charles took fire at this impertinence and replied, with becoming spirit, that he might be gone as soon as he liked, and that he would not receive orders from the Catholic king how to dispose of himself in marriage the ambassador found he had gone too far, and the next day waited upon his majesty, and after many flattering expressions, made him an offer, in the name of his royal master, by endowing her, whom he had once been eager to marriage, from motives of pure affection, Henrietta of Orange, with a portion equal to a daughter of Spain. Any proposition for making her his queen, whose hand had been denied him in the season of his adversity, always appears to have excited an indignant feeling on the part of Charles, nor could the proffered gold and political adoption of Spain overcome his pique against her. His misgivings as to the personal defects of Catherine of Braganza, however, caused him still to waver and delay the completion of the marriage treaty. Meanwhile, a special messenger from France arrived, with a private communication from Louis the Fourteenth, expressing regret that any obstruction to the Portuguese match should have arisen, as the Infanta was a lady of great beauty and admirable endowments, and that he had formerly serious thoughts of marrying her himself, only he had been deterred by complaisance for the queen his mother, who was a Spanish princess, from that alliance. He concluded with, an offer of 300,000 pistoles to relieve King Charles of his pecuniary embarrassments, and an intimation that he could not do better than to bestow himself in marriage with the Infanta of Portugal. Though Louis had married a Spanish princess, 
it was to his interest to prevent his brother of Spain from acquiring a formidable preponderance in the balance of power by the acquisition of Portugal. He therefore did his best to provide Dona Luisa with a son-in-law, who would be able and willing to espouse her cause. Charles was also reminded that Catherine was only the third in succession from the crown of that realm, which in the event of her brother's dying without issue, must devolve upon her. A sight of the portrait of the dark-eyed Infanta appears, after all, to have had more effect in deciding Charles to accept her hand than all the diplomatic subtleties of the courts of France and Portugal, the grave reasoning of his Lord Chancellor, or even the tempting dowry with which her politic mother offered to endow her. The portrait which was submitted to his consideration was reported to have been very like Catherine, and is supposed to have been the same which was lately sold in the dispersion of Horace Walpole's collection at Strawberry Hill. Catherine of Braganza is there represented as a lovely glowing brunette, with enchanting dark eyes and a rich profusion of chestnut hair, disposed in a wave pyramid on each side of her face, consisting of parallel lines of cannon curls, descending in graduated rows to the waist, in a most extraordinary and unaccountable fashion, as if in imitation of a Lord Chief Justice's state wig, but without powder. The whole of a very beautiful head of hair was spread out in this fantastic form, inside wings, with the exception of one large tress, which was combed slanting across the forehead, and gave additional oddity to this strange costume. Charles, whose devotion to dark-eyed beauties was almost proverbial, after attentively examining the portrait said, That person cannot be handsome and forthwith consented to see the ambassador, and receive the replies he had brought to the letters he had written to Catherine and her royal relatives, which he had so long neglected to notice. The ambassador entered into very full explanations with regard to the portion. The queen regent, he said, having resolved not to touch the public money that was raised for carrying on the war, had sold her own jewels and plate, and made up the deficiency by borrowing plate and jewels of the churches and monasteries, by which means she had the whole sum ready, sealed up in bags, and deposited where no one could take it to apply to any other use. That the fleet which was to be sent for the princess might first go to Tangier and take possession of it, her majesty having removed the old governor, who was, she said, humorous, meaning perverse, and sent out another, on whose compliance she could depend, to deliver that place into his majesty's hands. She had taken similar precautions with regard to Bombay, and furthermore, to give the greatest proof that it was possible to do of her confidence in his honor, she would send the Infanta unmarried to him, which was such a trust as had never before been reposed in any prince. The true reason of the politic mother of Catherine, offering to dispense with the usual security of a marriage by proxy for her daughter, was that the papal see, overawed by the power of Spain, had never acknowledged the independence of Portugal, and the royal title of either Juan IV or Don Alfonso. Consequently, the reigning pope, Alexander, to whom she must have applied for a dispensation, for the Infanta to contract marriage with a prince of the reformed religion, without which the ceremony could not be performed in Portugal, would have mentioned her only as the daughter of the late Duke of Braganza, and the sister of the present. This would have been more injurious to the royal family of Portugal than anything that could have been done by the fleets and armies of Spain. 
so that, says Clarendon, before they would receive that affront, the most jealous nation in the world chose rather to send the daughter of the kingdom to be married in England, and not to be married till she came thither. Charles, on his part, wisely avoided all the inconveniences and offenses that might have arisen at the coronation of a Catholic queen, by having the ceremonial of his inauguration performed before his union with Catherine of Braganza had taken place. He was crowned, with great splendor and universal rejoicing, on St. George's Day, April 23, 1661. On the 8th of May, the new Parliament met at Westminster, and was opened by the King in person, who addressed them in a long and very interesting speech from the throne, in which, after reminding them that it was the anniversary of the day on which he was proclaimed, and recommending them to forget all former divisions, and live peaceably together, he communicated to them his royal intentions with regard to his marriage in the following jocose manner. I will not conclude without telling you some news, news that I think will be very acceptable to you, and therefore I should think myself unkind and ill-natured if I did not impart it to you. I have been put in mind by my friends that it was now time to marry, and I thought so myself ever since I came into England. But there appear difficulties enough in the choice, though many overtures have been made to me, and if I should never marry until I could make such a choice, against which there could be no foresight of any inconvenience that may ensue, you would live to see me an old bachelor, which I think you do not desire to do. I can now tell you, not only that I am resolved to marry, but to whom I am resolved to marry, if God please, it is with the daughter of Portugal. And I will make all the haste I can to fetch you, a queen hither, who, I doubt not, will bring great blessings with her to me and you." Both Houses of Parliament voted and presented addresses of congratulation on His Majesty the next day. This was announced in due form to the Portuguese ambassador by Clarendon, who paid him a state visit on this occasion, the particulars of which are briefly related by Don Francisco de Mayo in the following letter to the young king of Portugal, Catherine's brother. Senor, this day the Grand Chancellor came to me with great pomp, two of his gentlemen bearing his insignia, which are a gilded mace and a crimson velvet purse, embroidered with the arms of His Majesty of Great Britain, and this visit is much to be valued, because it has not hitherto been made to any other ambassador. He brought me the resolutions which had been come to by the two houses of lords and commons, copies of which accompany this letter, whereby Your Majesty will perceive the general approbation which all England shows at the wise choice which this prince has made of the most serene lady Infanta to be queen of these kingdoms, God prosper his actions, and guard the royal person of your majesty, as your vassals desire and need of. Condi da Ponte. London, 23rd of May, 1661. Exactly one month after the date of this letter, Charles II signed the memorable treaty at Whitehall that united England and Portugal in a bond of alliance which has remained unbroken to the present day. The cession of Bombay, as a part of the dowry of Catherine of Braganza, gave to England her first possession in the East Indies, and proved ultimately the means of adding that mighty colonial empire, with all its commercial wealth and importance, to the British crown. Such was one of the results of the otherwise infelicitous union of that princess with Charles II. 
the marriage articles secured to Catherine the free exercise of her religion, with power to fit up a chapel in any palace where she might reside, the enjoyment of a settled income of £30,000 a year, which was to continue undiminished if she became Queen Dowager, and full liberty to return to her own country in that case, if it were her pleasure so to do. End of section 19